The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Russ, how are you, brother? Really good, Chris. How are you doing, mate? Wow. I, I'm, I, always, I usually end up starting my podcast by just saying what a lucky person I am. I get to speak to all my heroes, um, you know, and here I am. And, and today, it's not just one of my heroes I'm going to be talking to. It's going to be to Dirk, uh, he would do that. I'm going to do that. It's going to be two of my heroes. Just almost gave the game away there. Um, because can we say Russell Berriman is a former Royal Marines commando living over there in San Francisco. Um, but he's also the brains behind a certain comedy genius that keeps many of us military types um, entertained and has done for gosh about three three years now can you believe it's almost it's six years <laughs> I, yes I'm, no. I, I'm an old bastard so uh, I can <laughs> completely believe believe that and um, for our friends at home listening watching all will be revealed so stay tuned how are things in San Francisco, mate? It looks... It's pretty, it's pretty gloomy. Well, the weather's pretty gloomy, but I'm, I'm actually staring down from my office building right now, and it is apocalyptic, mate. It's, there's nobody. They, the the sheltering place that they put in force about three weeks ago, everyone is really taking heed to it. So it is dead, mate. And you're obviously... Uh... Um, what do they call it? Priority worker. Um, yeah, um, whatever they call it, um, a need, and a, somebody that's needed to work. Basically, a uh, what I do is um, I'm in a high-rise office building, so I run the building. So that's anything mechanical, electrical, plumbing. I, I take care of the whole building. So, oh, good man, good man. Yeah. I um. I think probably what's best for us, if we go back to the beginning, because I don't want to miss um, any of your story. And when I do podcasts, it, it always trips me up when my host goes, oh, Chris, tell us about. And I'm like, no, let let me tell my story like this. Or it just does not make any sense to to, to anybody. Um, why did you join the Marines? And when when did you join 
Well, I joined in 1980, July 22nd, 1980, 266 troop, Limston. I joined because a bunch of mates from my good mates from school were joining, and you know, it's like, yeah, I'll give that a go. I was 16 years old, didn't know shit from Shinola, mate. So thought it would be just a good laugh, you know? Boy, was I in for a shock when I got to Limston. <laughs> you get told, Russ, that you look young for your age. Oh, shit, mate. All the time. I mean, you know, as well as being young and, you know, obviously really fucking essence, you know, it's it's a curse because sometimes I have to carry a stick with me to fight the women off, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You and me both, mate. I, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> but not as much as Sam Murray, I can tell you that. Jeez. He has to fight the women off with a stick because, well, actually, they just want to beat him up. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. So, um, yes, can you tell us a bit about what was your training? I mean, they always say training doesn't really change, don't they? I, um, yeah. But well, we, we were both in the 80s, so we probably had quite a similar experience, although where you ended up in almost well not wouldn't have been a, almost immediately after training nor not we'll, we'll go on to that obviously we're talking about the Falklands conflict but yeah how was training Russ well yeah um for a 16 year old it was you know pretty nerve-wracking you know you, 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 especially when you get off that train at Limston Commando and the first thing that I remember seeing was down at the bottom field, you've got those um, bayonet practices um, right down near the gate, main gates almost, the gates to the train station. So that's the first thing I saw. And I was just like, what the fuck have I got myself into here, you know? Uh, luckily, um, my best mate from school was in the same troop as me. We, we managed to be joined at the same troop. So... Um, you know, remember it's 40 years ago, so I'm just kind of trying to remember little things. But you know, I remember um, going to the gym and then having to put the gloves on and you know do the old boxing for the first first few days and got the shit kicked out of me by this lad. Um, and yeah, it was just um, for a six, especially for a 16 year old, it was first time I'd been away from home, but. Um, after after a few weeks, you know, getting getting um, getting the hang of it, I really really started enjoying it. Mm. And I'm not sure if they do that now, still do that. But halfway through training, you get a new training team at a place called Oakhampton. Um, did you do that too? Did you say you get a new training team? Yeah, week 15, you switch training teams. That's what they did when we were there. And we got a new. Oh well, let me tell you, we got a new training team. And can I can I just say your your screen is wobbling? Oh, sorry. Um, okay, we'll, mate. We'll, sorry. We'll, people on YouTube will be throwing stuff. Well, I think it's an earthquake. <laughs> Probably won't be the first time in San Francisco, would it? No, I've I've been through a couple already. That's where all the that's where all the disaster movies are set. <laughs> Yeah, we got a, this San Andreas fault goes right through here. No, we but didn't. Yeah. We didn't change training teams. That's interesting to hear. 
Yeah, and it changed when we go to Oakhampton um, and the new training team we got, uh, they hated junior Marines. And we got pretty much beasted for the three weeks at Oakhampton and it was winter. So it was like December by then. And it was, that's when we lost a lot of guys. I mean, they really broke a lot of young lads there, which is a shame really because um, there's some good lads that actually left. So, you know. So yeah, we changed training teams and it got a lot tougher. The, past, the last 15 weeks was just hanging on with your fingernails with these guys. It's so. interesting you say that because when I was in training, there were troops joining up with 50, 55 guys and they were passing out with like six originals. I mean, it was... Um, and they put down this kind of what was obviously at times crossing over into just bullying. Um, they put it down to disgruntled, either disgruntled Falklands vets or Falklands vets that wanted the lads to know this isn't a freaking game. You know, this is this, this what you're letting yourself in. That There's probably several more theories and I, I don't pretend to know, but it's interesting that you were prior to the Falklands and, yeah, we experienced the same thing. Yeah, and I'm sure it's no. I'm sure everybody out there that's watching, or every bootneck, or probably paras, or most of them went through probably the same thing we did. You know, just toughening them up, as they call it. We yeah, had, we we had it as probably as hard as as you're officially allowed to give it to the nods. Mm -hmm. I will say here, our training team were really nice guys. You know, you could tell that they had our best interests at heart. Um, so, uh, yeah, hi, training team. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about the, the Falklands, Russ, because I don't know if you know, very old friend of mine, Guy, I massive, massive amounts of respect for and, and, and always will do. Um, big, tough, you know, big, tough guy. When I did, started the podcast and I wanted to talk to someone around about the Falklands, I mean, I don't know what it's like for other Marines, I'm kind of guessing, but I've obviously got quite a vested interest. Um, it's one of those things where I almost feel like I've, I've been there because I've heard so much about it and watched so many documentaries and, and read, I mean, I read two books just the other month written by, um, by a para who was down there. And so, yeah, I really wanted my friend to come on the podcast and just enlighten us because he used to tell the true to life stories you know not not what you see in the documentaries although though you 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 see a bit of it in the documentaries but he would tell you how if you were yomping in the Falklands carrying your massive um packs bigger than you've ever carried before if you turned an ankle or you got trench or whatever it was um your troop just had to sit you down give you as much ammo as they could spare and leave you to die. You know, you know, I mean, if you were lucky, you might get picked up by a passing chopper, but that they said it wasn't mucking around, you know, and, and he tells a lot of stories like that. 
long story short, he wouldn't come on the podcast because he's still, even after all this time, suffering so much for us. Wow. Um, Was he 4-5 by any chance? 4-5. Yeah. 4-5 commando for, for our friends at home. And I was just a bit of a mix of shocked and guilty that I'd never, it, I'd never thought to ask him if he was okay. Yeah. I just thought big, tough guy always just tells his stories. Um, you know, he's still a big, tough guy. I'm not, not let's, let's get, you know, let's get it straight. So over to you, Russ, what, where, when did you get the, the warning order? We were, um, I think it was April the 2nd. We were in Altcat um, Rifle Ranges just by, um, outside Liverpool when it all kicked off. So 40 Commando was out there in Altcat. And then, the, you know, the, the murmurings went around about the Falklands had been invaded. Of course, some of, them didn't, some of us didn't even know where the Falklands were, just like, you know. Hmm. But um, we soon found out. So when we, we headed back to Seton Barracks in Plymouth which was our base back then. And um, we, Alpha, I was Alpha Company, and we were told to pack all our kit. Leave was, you know, we were meant to go on leave right after Olcar, but leave was cancelled. Um, the Falklands had been invaded. And within 24 hours, we were on coaches with all our kit heading down to Portsmouth because we were advanced party um, to join the Hermes. So we we got down to the Hermes, I think April the 4th, we were, we were on, well, it's 38, 38 years ago today, funnily enough. How about that? Um, coincidentally. And so we got there and we were just loading ammo. It was just crazy down there. It was just madness, just loading that ship up. Um, and the Hermes, just refresh our memory, Russ, was that an, one of our old aircraft carriers? Or? Yeah, it was actually the flagship, I believe, or was that the Invincible? I think Hermes was the flagship. Uh, yeah, Hermes was the old um, aircraft carrier. We had two Hermes and Invincible at the time. Um, and April 5th, um, we set sail, you know, just like, just like you see in the movies, leaving the dock and all the... All the girls crying with their hankies at the Southampton uh, Portsmouth dock, you know. God. Uh, and um, you've probably seen some of the, the footage of it. You know, we're all lined on the deck, and you know, it hadn't really sunk in that we were going to war at that stage. It was just like, you know, adrenaline, exciting. You know, remember, I'm 18 years old at the time. So, did you think it? I've heard some Marines say they thought it was just going to get cooled off any moment and you'd all have to go home again. We all did. We all thought that. You know, we thought, oh, be a nice little exercise to the Bay of Biscay or somewhere down off the coast of Portugal. And we thought, you know, we'd turn around and um, things would get sorted. But as we soon found out, things changed pretty rapidly, you know, with the sinking of the Belgrano and then the Sheffield. Um, so yeah, yeah, we were, we were on the Hermes till about, I think it's April the, 
April the 17th, we, we were at Ascension Islands and we got there. So we were waiting for the rest of the task force, which left a few days later or a week or two later. Um, so we were down at Ascension for a week waiting for the task force to catch up. And then we crossed it from the Hermes to the Sir Tristram um, and waited, waited there for the task force to catch up. And we spent, I don't know, a week or so there. Uh, we managed to get a shore, which was nice. Um, lay on the beach, all got a burnt suntan, you know, you're all but you know. <laughs> And after that, we um, went on to the luxury line of the Canberra from that. And then we realized how, how nice the lads have been having it, you know. We're up on these bunks in the Hermes, like five deep, and they've got these bloody cabins to themselves. Like, now that's the way to go. Just for our younger listeners um it wasn't just the navy that sailed it wasn't just the rfa the royal fleet auxiliary who support support the navy but they commandeered civilian cruise liners didn't they or at least yeah Yeah, the q2 yeah my my second cousin was the chief steward on the qe2 cool um I'm guessing they kind of kept them as far away from the actual action as I, I don't know. I'm I'm just thinking that they're obviously su- civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they stay outside the exclusion zone, uh, zone, the civilian liners, or did they have to go and drop people off? No, um, no, they were in the thick of it. The Canberra, the Great White Whale, as it was nicknamed was right there in San Carlos waters, getting the ship bombed out of it. Luckily, it didn't get hit, but yeah. Wow. Did I not see a photo? Was it not the camera that had a massive shell hole in it when it sailed back or was? I don't think that was the camera. Um, There was a lot of, there was a lot of ships that had that damage. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot that got hit. But yeah, after the, the, the Canberra, you know, I think we joined the rest of 40 Commando. I think 42 Commando was on it. I can't, you know. And I think two or th- no, two, no, three Para was on it, I think, with us. How, how did it feel, Russ, or at what point, when I mean, you're 18 years old, was there a point where you suddenly thought, geez, I've got to go into battle and kill people or and they're going to be trying to kill me yeah yeah i mean it was fun and games for a while you know that that schoolboy, 18 year old um things changed like i like i mentioned earlier when that sheffield got hit it got real then you know the mood changed dramatically in the guys we knew we were going to war we knew that there was you know we sank there carrier the Belgrano they'd sank the Sheffield and now it's now it's on so that was the point I think and I I'm sorry I don't remember the date people out there can google when the Sheffield got hit but that was the day it got real for I'd say 90% of the task force we realized we were definitely going to war and we were going to actually fight so yeah that was it um and then after after the Canberra, um, 
I think it was a couple of days, uh, May 19th or May 20th, we cross-decked to HMS Fearless, which, as you know, is a commando carrier. Um, and that is um, how we were going to go ashore from the landing crafts on the Fearless. Um, and yeah, we were packed like sardines in there. And yeah, that's when the jitters really started. I mean, the nerves, the adrenaline, especially right before we were going to, I mean, right before we were getting in the landing crafts, that is the worst. I think that's the worst feeling. Never been physically sick, almost just so scared because the waiting is worse than actually doing it. And so you could hear a pin drop. It was about, you know, three or 400 commandos and you could just a few little whispers. So, you know, everybody was feeling the same way, but yeah. What um, did you do? It might sound a silly question, but what, what did you do with your sort of PE kit and your sort of not, not, um, you know, because you see people wearing stone shirts, which is like Marines dress, a dress shirt. And obviously you didn't take that in your Bergen when you went ashore. Did, did you take a, your pasta suit, your, your Navy suitcase or? No, no, just the Bergens. And we kept, we kept. Um, I mean, sorry, I, I might I sound like an idiot if I say that. What I mean is, did you leave stuff on the ship, on the yeah. ship? We did. We did. Um, and it got. It got taken, I can't remember, but it all got packed up and taken somewhere else. We lost, most of us lost all our kit that we left behind. Mm. Uh, a lot of it just, you know, that's when, you know, we just claimed it back at the end of it. Amazing, some guy had claimed, you know, he had like 10 Swiss Swiss watches. So, you know, he, he looked out. <laughs> I wish I was smart enough to think like that. Mm. But yeah, we just went ashore with our, our fighting order, our burdens and, a lot of ammo. Wow. Um, and it was, um, it was like, we were the first wave ashore, Alpha Company. So we were the first with two para. Um, so about two o'clock in the morning, 2.30 a.m., uh, May 21st, when we were loading into the landing craft. And I remember encircling around to the, the, the ship, the, the fearless, waiting for all the landing, the LCUs um, to fill up. And then in a, in a line, we would, they were, then we were off. And it was a two-hour two hour ride to San Carlos Blue Beach from... Two hours in the landing craft? It was two hours. And it was, that was, yeah, definitely, yeah, it was at least two hours. But, That's uh, like the bit of saving Private Ryan when when all the shit's going down and you had to sit in there for, for two hours. Yeah, it all was. the time expecting when I step ashore and I'm probably going to get soaking wet up to here when I go ashore, there's going to be rounds coming in. If, if, if the Argentines know their stuff, they should have intelligence that's telling them we're coming ashore now and they should put up resistance, right? I mean, you weren't to know that they didn't, but you still had that pressure. Yeah, what, what we learned was, well, what we were told was, there was at least 160 Arges at San Carlos Settlement, which is a, it's a company, you know, or more than a company. That's a lot of Arges um, that could defend a beachhead. 
Um, so that was really nerving. Um, and we heard the SBS had gone in to um, attack them, which they also did at um, Darwin and Goose Green um, as a diversionary. So they didn't know where we were landing. So as we're, as we're coming into San Carlos waters, we passed a place called, a point called Fanning Head, and there was a massive firefight going on. There was just rounds and shit going on. It was just like, holy shit, you know? Um, and that was the SBS. They had attacked the position of the Argentinians. And um, luckily they had, uh, there was only about 20 or 30 Argies. They'd killed half of them and got the, and, um, got the rest. So what we were waiting for was a green light, which three dots, which is S dot, dot, dot is S, which means beach is secure. And the SBS were going to be there um, letting us know where to land. Of course, that never happened. So that's when you start thinking, as soon as that ram goes down, what the fuck have we got, you know? So we didn't know what we were, what we were going to face. So especially with a firefight going on, we didn't know if it's how many edges were there, if there were a line up waiting for us, you know, everybody thought of the, you know, the Normandy landings. And so. Did you go ashore on a pontoon or something, you know, like a, like a, a walkway or did you have to jump in the water? No, it was, um, you know, there's a lot of comedy of errors that happen in wartime. And, um, the landing was no different, so we we get we get about twenty meters, twenty or thirty meters to the shore, and it's like okay, ramp down. Ramp wouldn't go down, so the pins hadn't been greased, so they were stuck. So there we are with an LCU engine revving up and the beep beep beep, the, you know, so much for a silent um, assault. We had to get a big sledgehammer and bash the fucking pins out so the ramp would go down. So, you know, you, you think about it, there's about 40 or 50 of us cramped in there and we're just, the adrenaline's going and the ramp won't go down. It's like, oh, fucking come on, someone, put the fucking... You would have thought, you'd have thought that, they call them dry, coxswain or driver? You'd have the coxswain, you'd have thought it'd have, it'd have been on the, on the ball with that. You would have thought so. And you would have thought that what they would have done is um, disable the, the horn that when you reverse. <laughs> anyway, it goes down and, of course, no dry landing, you know, straight up to your, your chest. And it's icy cold, obviously. So now we're all threaders at this point. So we wade in and our, our job was to make, make a business get the position secured and make way for the armored personnel carriers to come in. So we were off the beach. So we were gonna put um, fluorescent markers around it so they knew where to land. That was our that was our job. But there's no beach. It was no beach. It was just a six foot peat wall. So we all come ashore and we all and it's pitch black, you know, it's like 334, no, it's about four in the morning by now, five in the morning. And we hit this peat, peat, peat wall, you know, and we hit each, it's like the Keystone Cops, you know, just bouncing into each other, you know. So being switched on bootnecks, we, two guys, 
would go to the front with their rifle and lift each other up, you know, stand on the rifle and over the over the wall you go. So it was it was to say the least a, a little bit of a shambles the landing, but we, we got there. We, we we got dry. I mean, and then we moved up to the high ground. Um, waiting for the rest of the guys. To... Do you remember how you got dry? Oh no, we we were in all round defence um, at the top of the at the top of the hill overlooking San Carlos. We were in all round defence for about four four hours, shivering. We was we were freezing, so we dried out ourselves and we didn't we didn't have time to change. Mm. Um, and then we started digging in when it started getting light. And of course, if you see the photos. You, as soon as you dug in, it would fill with water. So that's when we started building the Peter Sangers. So we built up. Um, and the, the terrain is just unbelievable. You know, talk about twist and ankle, like you said earlier. Mm. It is just a grass full of water and just rocks. And it's oh, pitch black at night, you know. You can figure maybe if you're lucky, one kilometer an hour, that's about your, your speed. So... It was just, um, yeah, the first the first day we were um, probably hadn't slept for 24, 40 hours by then. So we were exhausted. So we just started building up the, the peace hangers to, uh, for some protection for what was about to come next. So, How long did you stay, stay in that position? We stayed in that position for about a day till the next day, if I remember rightly. Um, but we were on the top overlooking San Carlos water. Um, luckily, by, by the time you know, we dug in, 3,000 troops had come ashore, you know, 40 commando, two para, um, 4-2 commando, and 4-5. They, they landed at um, Port San Carlos, which is a little bit further over the hills. So they did a, there was like two, two places we landed, Port San Carlos, and San Carlos. Mm. Uh, the main landings were at San Carlos, obviously, but soon as soon as it became light, that's when the show started with the Argentinian jets. It was unbelievable to see what, what was happening. It right must there. have been just so surreal at that point. Surreal, yeah, I mean, you could pinch yourself. You're like, am I really seeing this? I mean, as an 18-year-old kid sat in a, in a theater of war, looking down jets below you as they're hugging the terrain and dropping bombs on the ships and then seeing actual planes explode above you, you know. Um, it was like, oh, this shit's real, you know. And you must have been, your thoughts must have been with your oppos from training as well because they, they're, you know, they're in all spread out through the commander units. and mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, it's kind of like, guys, just a year ago when we passed out of Limpston, did we ever envisage we'd all be here? Yeah. I mean, what did you think? Northern Ireland was about it. That's all you thought of. And maybe a med trip or Belize or something. And that was all it. Or Norway. Did you, do an, uh, did you do an island? Did I do an island? Well, unfortunately, I was... Um, medically discharged shortly after the Falklands. So I had to stay behind. So I didn't get to do the Northern Ireland with the rest of the lads. I 
I I don't just say looked out. I really wanted to go just to just to be with the lads, you know. Mm. But no, I didn't do a Northern Ireland tour. I at just all. wanted to some sort of probably a bit juvenile, but some sort of comparison because I. But I. It, I guess for anyone listening, it, it's it's different for every individual. There's some people that go to war, don't see any action whatsoever. Mm-hmm. There's other people, like our unit, when we went to Northern Ireland, where it just kicked off, well, certainly on a daily basis. Um, yeah. And some of the stuff kicking off was, it was life threat. You know, I mean... We we were my my team were lucky to come back alive, definitely. Um, so, so yeah. So, w- what was the weight like? You kept wh- how big were you then, Russ? Because I'm quite small, or I was certainly small in training. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm not. I'm. F- I was about 145 pounds, if you can imagine. So same uh, as me then. Yeah, I was a scrawny kid, like a few of the guys, but, you know, we, I think, I don't know how much we carried, but it must have been 60 pounds and of the ammo. I I had the two-inch mortar, so I carried the two-inch mortar as well as um, rounds for the two-inch mortar. Um, ammo, you know, for the, um, I think for the 84, I think everybody had to spread that around. So, yeah, we were carrying, you know, 80 pounds at least. God. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty heavy, but um, yeah, yeah, we were we were pretty we we went on a lot of yumps, so we were pretty knackered. Our feet, our knees, our back, you know. What was the longest you had to yomp in any one in in any one yomp or any twenty four hour period? Uh, I would say twenty five kilometers. We actually, right after the Battle of Goose Green, um, May 28th, May 28th, I believe the Goose Green Battle was, we were um, told to to yomp from San Carlos to Goose Green to um, pick up the three or 400 prisoners that they'd captured. So as we started yomping out of um, San Carlos, all the way through the train up the Mount Sussex Mountain, and then we it was like a it was like a twenty plus mile yomp to Goose Green. So we got about ten k, eleven k, and they said hey, there's not four hundred, there's twelve hundred prisoners. So turn around. So that so we got halfway there, and then just turned around and yomped back. So that was. That was a full day, and we were all freaking exhausted then with that weight. So that was the yomp. I think that was the longest. We yomped um, from San Carlos to Port San Carlos. That was our other um, long yomp. We were taking over the position of 4-5 Commando, who did the famous long yomp, you know, all the way across the Falklands. So they did, they did a lot further than us at one point, at one stage, you know. But yeah, so we got there. Did four two commando do that yomp as well? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it was just four five and three power. Hmm. Four two, I got I shit, you know, history buffs will 
beat the shit out of me if I get it wrong, but they, uh, they it's, it's, Mam Williams, a sick man, they landed or they, they yoked to there, they and then they stayed in that area, I believe, until Harriet. But you know, don't quote me on that. Uh, so I suppose I need to ask you, did what sort of action did 40 Commando see or were were you sounds I mean my history isn't uh, is probably a bit like you just said it's not um it's probably not as good as it should be right but I get I I got this kind of vision that they very much supported the other units or, or other units yeah, what happened was Forty was left back at San Carlos and we were all a little pissed off about that, you know, obviously. We, they were going to move us forward in two separate occasions, um, but the plans got changed on an hourly basis. So we ended up staying in San Carlos for quite a long time, even though we'd done all these yarns getting ready, um, until the um, Sir Galahad got hit where the Welsh guards um, lost a lot of men. So um, that's when Alpha Company, which I was in, and Charlie Company moved forward to the Fitzroy Bluff Cove area to make up the numbers from the two battalions, um, two companies of Welsh guards that had been disabled. So we were then attached to the Welsh guards for the duration of the war. And that's when we that's when we were uh, going to a few little skirmishes and a bit of mischief. We uh, we were going to um, support um, Four Two Commando uh, for Mount Harriet. So our our job was to clear the area of enemy with Four Two going up Mount Harriet. They expected a lot of losses from Four Two because it was so heavily defended. But it was such a brilliant battle. I don't know if you've read about it. How how far two commando would um, attack that mountain, but it was pretty brilliant. Mm. Um, um, if you if you read about it, you'll understand that it took about a week or so for them to do all the wreckies and realized it was just a killing field at the front with minefields and there's no way they could take it. So they kept doing patrols, finding out where all their positions were. Through and then they went through the minefields at night, all the way around the back and attacked from the rear, um, and it was brilliant. Um, oh, it was a really brilliant attack, um, and we were we were yomping late at night. Um, unfortunately, we got held up because some of the other unit was a little um, slow, and the weight was holding them back. So we had to wait for quite a while, which um, made us late for the party, basically for the formal position, the FUP for four two. Well, let's. Um, I mean, yomping is not not easy for Marines, is it? I mean, it's the weight you're carrying. It it. I would guess now in modern warfare, it's probably gone over into the ridiculous. There's, there's so much, so much technical gubbins to be thinking of, and ammunition, and weapon systems, and laptops, and GPS, and and. Yeah. And all this kind of stuff, even though obviously kit gets lighter as it as it gets better, but I found yomping so hard. Um, it's kind of easier in Norway on skis 
mm-hmm. for the simple reason you you only really needed the clothes you stood up in and what one, yeah. one you know just a little bit of emergency gear everything else you could just jettison it um but yeah. but in in a in a traditional theater of war there's certain stuff you need um especially if you're getting wet all the time yeah muscle yeah. the ammunition and it's not it's it's not easy for a trained commando i'm guessing right i'm not guessing i, I know i've been there so for to be attached to an army unit who probably haven't been put to that the tests that that you and I have, when haven't had to prove themselves and pass it. I mean, you run thirty miles across Dartmoor, mm-hmm. and after eight months of <laughs> the most grueling training you can imagine, you're drained. Your body's depleted of vitamins and energy, and you've got to ru- basically run thirty miles across the most difficult terrain in the UK, and. And I'm just trying to say that our, our no disrespect to our army uh, compatriots, but they don't have to do that. So I, I would imagine when when put to the test as they were, some of them found it really hard. Yeah, and it's also it's done at night, so and it's on uneven terrain and there's a lot of rockscapes so there was a lot of falling I mean a lot of injuries just even yomping you know like you like you said earlier twisting your ankle um being left there but yeah that yeah I, I had a couple of nasty falls and really messed my back up but um managed to keep going found out my back hurt a lot later in life but due to that but yeah, it was it was very rough terrain. So, but by the time we got to Harriet, um, the uh, the battle had just about to start, and it was we got a front row seat to see the most amazing firefight and display of warfare that I've ever experienced. We, um, the shells coming in from the from the ships. I can't remember. I think it may have been broadsword or. I can't remember how many was supporting for two, but just lifting the top of that mountain up, and you're like, "How the hell can anybody survive up there with that bomb naval bombardment going in before the battle?" And then you saw the traces, and then the battle was on, and it was just like, "How how can anybody survive?" And to the amazement, only two Royal Marines lost their lives. One was my um, Lofty Watts. He was uh, my training team corporal. So RIP Lofty, He's a, he was a good bloke. Mm. Uh, but only two was amazing for um, just looking at it, You thought, how can anyone survive that? So pretty, pretty amazing. And then, uh, yeah, so that was, that was, that was the first, that was the first taste. And the next, um, the next taste would have been um, tumble down. Again, our our objective was to support the Scots Guards, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and go up the mountain with them. But again, we um, we had difficulty getting there, and for for some unbeknownst reason, um, we were taken 
the wrong turning and led straight into a minefield, right, right near tumble down. So reason we knew we were in the minefield is because you could hear the explosions of the guys in front from Charlie Company, 40 Commando, um, I say lost their legs. And then we just like, oh, fuck. So now we're absolutely stuck in the middle of a minefield at, near the foot of Mount Tumbledown. And that's when the artillery started um, firing, aiming at us. <clears throat> so if you can imagine, you can't move. The wind, and the, it, was, it was one of the most freezing nights. I mean, it was blistering cold with that wind going sideways and the hail and the rain. And we had to stand there for six hours while they cleared a path with nothing but shells landing. You could hear them coming in and you're like, is this the one? Luckily, um, because of the, the peat and the, and the tufts of grass, a lot of the shells imploded and we got covered in shit instead of shrapnel. So we got really lucky in that minefield. It took us almost till daylight to get out, I think. By that time, after Scots Guard was still in a battle, but it was almost over. Our job was to, a job, our mission was to take with the Scots Guards, um, tumble down and then press on and take Sapper Hill, which was the last stronghold before you hit um, Port Stanley. So that changed a little bit. So come the morning, we absolutely exhausted. It took us a few hours to dig our um, shell scrapes, our sangers, just about to get, get some rest and the order would come in. Um, Alpha Company and Charlie Company were going to do a daylight helicopter assault on Sapper Hill. So that was it. We were, we were ready, um, all lined up. And here come from the distance. It looked like we've seen on Apocalypse Now, these movies, just a line of helicopters, Wessex, Sea Kings coming in and picking us up. And um, it was like a short 10, 20 minute um, a helicopter to Sapper Hill and yeah and the shit hit the fan there too it was it was one of those um, it was um, like a skirmish rather than a battle because it was still being held by some, some Argentinians but a lot have already fled so there was still um, pockets of Argentinian resistance <clears throat> and unfortunately for Charlie Company more than Alpha, the helicopters landed way too close to the foot of Harriet and they got shot at. And, you know, we could, you know, some um, rounds are going through all the helicopters and, you know, two lads, mate of mine, two mates of mine now, turned out to be pretty good friends. Um, yeah, they got, they got seriously injured. And as soon as we got out of the helicopters, it was you know, run to the side. Our our objective and orders were don't stop for anybody. Just take just take the position. If somebody falls, leave them. Um, if you don't, you're going to get killed. You know, you've got to keep moving. So once we once we once we um, went to the sides and we saw some dead Argentinians up, up ahead that had been you know in the firefight. Just as we started to to spread out the um, the word came over the radio that the white flag was flying in Stanley. And 
let me tell you, that was the best feeling because a daylight helicopter assault on Sapper Hill, open terrain through a minefield, we wouldn't be talking right now. Perfect. It was. Um, another 30 minutes, another half an hour, we'd have been in some serious trouble. Um, yeah, there was just one chalk road, and then it was that leads into Stanley. So that was it. We took the position, and um, Charlie and Alpha Company took the position, um, and then four or five. Were there, were there shots fired after the ceasefire? Um, I'm not sure. Not not from us. Um, not in our. I don't. We were worried because we heard of the, you know, the white flag going up and the ceasefire. But you know, in all the positions around, the word probably didn't get around to everybody. So yeah, I'm sure there was a few instances which was being, but not with us. We it did pretty you, much. Did, you, go did ahead. you meet meet any Argentines? Oh, many. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, were they as yeah. young as? As I've been told, I mean, I got told they weren't, some of them weren't even 16. Um, no, I think they were just like us, 68, 17 to 19. They looked young. But yeah, we, we ended up guarding prisoners for a week, even officers. We guarded hundreds and hundreds of prisoners. So we got, we got, to, um, got, got to mingle with them in, as best you could. You know, got to, nobody could speak English, but um, none of them could. And uh, we communicated, it was pretty funny. The way they communicated with us was singing Beatles songs. So, you know, they knew the words. They didn't know what they meant, but they, they, they sang in English. But, you know, they were just full of dysentery. They were just exhausted. They didn't want to be there. So they were. I, I, I had no hard feelings towards these young guys. They were just put in a position that they shouldn't have been, you know, so. Because a lot of them were, well, not a lot, but many of them were running, doing secret incursions into Port Stanley in the nighttime, leaving their position on the top of the mountains because they were starving. Yeah. They yeah. Get, get into Stanley, go through the rubbish bins, trying to, you know, to feed off the scraps at the officers who, who left them on the mountains or, or many, many of the, certainly the senior officers had. Um, yeah, I heard that. What's it? What's it like? Because in this book I read, um, written by a para, he put a lot of emphasis on on the trophy grabbing after these battles. That everybody would go on the hunt for souvenirs and and I'm guessing as expensive souvenirs as they could find. Was that anything you? We didn't really get involved in that. I mean, we, we went through with a few positions and grabbed a couple of things. I mean, to be honest, I didn't give a shit at that point. I was just exhausted, tired and wanted to go home and happy that, you know, we'd made it through. So, um, no, I didn't really. How many um, had 40 suffered any deaths by this point? Yeah, yeah, we, we'd lost a lot of. A lot of injuries, but well, I mean, you said about obviously the the mines going off. 
Yeah, they lost probably a lot of accidents as well. Yeah, they lost their legs, but they didn't. Well, they survived. Um, the helicopter assault on Sapper Hill, the lads both survived. We lost only one um, in um, San Carlos during the heavy um, bombard bombardment from the Argentinian Air Force. Mm. Um, McAndrews was his name, Foy Commander, a <clears> thousand <throat> pound bomb landed in his trench. So, you know, they lost a f So there was a lot of injuries down in the settlement, um, HQ, Foy Commander HQ. So we were kind of happy to be on the hills watching it, because that's where all the bombs were landing. We had a, one of our scariest things was um, we were so, the, the jets were so low and you had all the sea darts and all the, the cannon fire from the, from the ships, you know, they were hitting the hilltop above us. We're like, holy shit, we're going to get blue and blue from the Navy. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty hairy. But well, yeah, we, we did lose one guy. In fact, I was at his funeral in Manchester. I was part of his funeral procession. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how, how much time was it after the white flag went up that, that you got repatriated or you got on the ship to go home? Um, ooh, it must have been at least 10 days, two weeks. We did, I remember... Um, we had to go through the whole Falkland Islands and pick up all the brass. Um, I'm just kidding, we didn't. <laughs> no, we uh, we had to guard all the arches for a while. Um, the brass, for anyone listening, and you, if you don't know what it is, he's talking about the empty cylinders after the the rifles and the machine guns have been fired, all the brass cylinders, they, they had to go and clean up. It's It's something if you've ever fired on a rifle range, you'll know that's a job that you, you don't want to do. Yeah, so yeah, no, we uh, we did a guard in the Argentinians for, uh, you know, for a few days. Um, I don't remember, yeah, May 20, yeah, probably a week, probably a week to 10 days, I would say. We were uh, on the Canberra, ready to head home. Wow. Yeah. And was there a, I mean... <laughs> Obviously, there's a sense of relief because you. I was gonna. Say, I don't want to say you know you're not gonna die anymore because I'm sure with all those mines all over the place and 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 rogue Argentines wandering around, there's still a big. You've got to be careful, right? But was oh, yeah. there was was it a sense of was it a feel good sense? Thank God it's over at least now we we know we're going home or was that 10 days miserable because you were it must have been hard to get rations by then and i heard even fresh drinking water was really hard to come by yeah yeah it was no i don't remember it being i remember it being a bit more of a relief we knew we were we were safe you know the Argentinians pretty much dropped all the weapons but the mine clearing, we did lose some guys after just by mines and stuff like that. That was the, you know, we had to be really careful where we trod because they weren't really marked at all. That's why even today, the Falcons, you've got minefields on the beach, the beautiful beaches, you know, you're not allowed on because it, they're all mined. Um, so it's it's sad, really. But no, we were, we were pretty uh, good spirits by the time we uh, 
got on board that ship, I can tell you. Relieved that we'd made it through it more than anything. Did you Some frustration, but finally, you know, the frustration that we didn't actually fight as a commando unit for a commanding take a mountain, but yeah, for the grace of God go I, because, you know, look, three para, four, five, two para, Scots guards, four, two, you know, they were, they're, they can tell different stories that I'm telling. I'm sure it was a lot more hair raising, but, you know, I'd seen enough to be glad it was over, you know. And to well, survive. it's, I mean, had things been different, we might not be having this conversation. Yeah, a lot of very close calls, yeah. And and one more thing is, maybe it's a bit silly, but at least you got to go down there, Russ, you know. Imagine the people that had to stay in guard Bickley Barracks yeah. that yeah. didn't didn't want to be there, you know. I've met I've met some of those guys. Yeah, a lot of disgruntled Marines, I'm sure, that didn't want to that wanted to go. But and I, I I'm not sure, but I heard I didn't want to send the whole of the commandos because they didn't expect many to survive, to be honest with you. They thought we would have a lot more killed and they wanted to make sure that there were numbers to keep um to make up the commando units that had actually gone down there. So that was one of the reasons. I was told, and well, that makes sense. But uh... yeah, my friend um, was telling me. I say friend, our, our, <clears throat> our one of our oppos that when they got back to four five, they were all supposed to be doing weapons drill, and nobody would. You know, everyone's just staring at the ground after everything they've been through, and the the corporal or the PW the the weapons instructors saying come on fellas put put some effort in there like fuck off you know if they said down there it wasn't all the drills that they were taught in training just went all out the window it was get the fucking magazine on as quick as you can cock your weapon they just walked up the hill you know there was none of this fire and maneuver stuff that we were all taught these special they said you just march the enemy when people started dying then you went to ground and you just got up the hill as best you could. Yeah. And all this, you know, check your top round, put stow your magazine away in your pooch. Uh, yeah. he, he was like, he said, you just fired all you, you know, fired your rounds off magazine, throw that fucker away and, and just keep, keep going. And uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we taped our magazines together so we could just switch them. That was one of them, real quick. But did you sail home on the same ship the whole way? Yeah, Canberra. We had that that big homecoming, if you remember, in Southampton. Um, were the, were there women on board? As um, in, yeah, as in, yeah as I in think the, so. the staff of the ship, the stewardesses, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I believe they were. They're brave, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I like I mentioned, um, the Canberra was in the thick of it. That um, that ship, um, a lot of a lot of some civilians got killed. A lot of um, not just servicemen. You remember the 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 Chinese on the ships. Um, so a lot of those got killed. So you know, hats off to them going into war too. And so you know, as we know, yeah, for people listening it's the chinese laundry men right who traditionally in the british navy have come from hong kong 
to work on the British military ships, the naval ships, yep. to wash, iron, wash dry and iron all the men's, I say men's, it's now obviously uh, my, my ship, HMS Invincible, was the first to have women on board, which was pretty brilliant, actually. <laughs> 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 say you know more more on the on what in such a serious conversation we're having but yeah it was a yeah. bit of a party ship you could say um but yeah i remember one of the lads one was fishing off the forecastle the front of the ship and he caught he caught a uh, an octopus <laughs> so he went up and knocked on the door of the chinese mess and went you know holy I brought you a, I bought you guys some dinner, and the guy went, "Fuck off, we ain't eating that." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like like you said, that you can see them in the um, documentaries. Uh, certainly, I think after the Galahad went up, you saw you saw Chinese men with all their skin burnt burnt off. Yeah. Um, was must have been a kind of atmosphere of luxury wasn't it when you got on board oh what you've been to been through yeah i think i had like a two-hour shower just to try and clean myself up i mean i was so yeah it was it was nice i mean who can imagine i mean sailing to war in a on a cruise line is not bad you know i'll take it but that, uh, you know, the homecoming was just amazing. Yeah, the whole, you know, even even the coaches when we landed at Southampton, all the way to Portsmouth, the whole motorways and everything was lined up with people. It was it was brilliant. Yeah. Well, for some crazy reason, I was there. Um, obviously, twelve years old at the time. We were driving across country for some like I say, for some reason, and coming down the motorway and the A38 at that time, back back to the southwest. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was it, carnival atmosphere, uh, doesn't really describe it. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. Um, yeah. Of course. Uh, there's no words to describe it, mate. You know, the the cars were all packed with returning servicemen whose families had come to pick them up. Everyone, you know, everyone was waving at them. And and uh, did you come into Pompey, Ports, Portsmouth? I think we, I think it was Southampton we landed at. I'm almost positive. So no, I don't. I know we stopped. We stopped in Dorchester. You, you were on a liner, so it would have been obviously would wouldn't have been the naval dockyard at Pompey. No. So, yeah, no, I think it was Southampton Dock we, we landed at, and we um, we got the coaches from there take us back to um, Seaton Barracks. Did you land um, during the day? Yeah, and yeah, so you, yeah. There you'll was, see. Um, there was people. absolutely madness. It was fantastic you know all the tiny little flotillas around you with all the women taking their clothes off it was nice yeah. uh just i mean one book i read it was written by a royal marine he said driving down the back down the motorway in the coaches 
every time they got to a a lay-by, it was just packed with people. Yeah, and all the overhead, the bridges and everything. Yeah, and they were flagging down the coaches and just passing on crates of beer. Yeah, it's true. That's right. It was great. Unbelievable. Gosh. Yeah. So, that, well, I just close by saying what a proud time to be a Royal Marine, Russ. Yeah. Uh, I think any time is proud to be a Royal Marine, but that was definitely a, mm. an, a, an experience. I, you know, I've been over in the States now for over, shit, almost 30 years, actually. But, and you know, still all my mates, you know, that we were down south with and my troop, we, and our company, we get together all the time. We were meant to get together in Liverpool April the 18th, but obviously we can't with this virus going on. But yeah, we get together. We're still close, close friends. We're st- and mad as ever, just like little kids, you know, childish. But oh, mate, it's you know that that bond. It's amazing. After all these years, I'm over here on my own, so I don't get to uh, mingle with many bootnecks or see many um, servicemen. So it's a real a special treat for me. Every time I come home, I always make sure we, we do a reunion and meet up with the lads. Yeah. So. It's great. So I, I've heard that there was one guy in the Falklands that basically won it for everybody. I heard this story too. I don't know if it's true, but... They landed in the, the Falklands um, desert, the, 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 the desert part of the Falklands, and then they set up a harbour position in the rainforest is it did you hear this story i i've read i don't know if it's an old wives tale but um yeah i mean i've read that they landed at um carlos santana i think was the was the place um and it was yeah in the thick canopy of the falklands jungles is is where most of these battles that not many people know about you know that's where most of these battles took place against the, the Venezuelans, obviously. I thought it was so, the, I thought it's the Iranians that he took out. It depends how many drinks you've had, you know. The story changes. It's it's. Uh... <laughs> and shall we? Um, shall we let our listeners know who this legendary special forces Lone Ranger, Paro Marine Delta Force Commando is? There you go. Da-da-da. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. For those of you that hadn't worked it out or didn't know, Russ is our very own Dirk Steele. Or he's the brains behind the brains behind it. Brains are that's that's um that's pushing it, mate. But <laughs> okay, I'll just uh to, for the people listening that are still trying to figure out the, the Falklands rainforest, Dirk Steele is, is he's a legend. He's a man of steel. I, I don't really know if he does actually exist or he's a cartoon or he's just a figment of Russ's imagination or if it actually is Russ's alter ego. But <laughs> the superhero commando, SAS, SBS legend. Um, 
In fact, he's confused most. He seems to be confused most of the time as what what he actually is. Lives with his mum. Loves God. loves kicking her back doors in. <laughs> Got to smash your mum's back doors in. That's smash her truth. back doors doors in. Um, and uh, and that's not a euphemism. We're talking. He takes his commando training extremely uh, seriously, and he's got a beloved dog. How did that come around? Colin. 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 Colin special forces. Every every special forces operative has to have a dog, you know. Um, and of course, Colin is um, probably the dumbest dog on the planet. Colin's an alcoholic, like <laughs> most special forces dogs, but, you know, his shitty map reading skills gets Dirk into more trouble than you can throw a stick at, you know. You know, he is... Uh, Colin derived from a photograph I saw on a, on a special forces um, photograph, um, a special forces page where he had all SEALs or Delta Force or something, and they had their dog and they had his eyes blacked out. And that's when I um, came up with, with Colin. <laughs> they so, had the dog's eyes black out for anonymity, and it's a dog. <laughs> yeah, so that's 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 how Colin um, came to fruition, and that's how uh, you always see any time Colin's in the, in the um, Facebook pages, his eyes are blacked out, yeah, just so that you don't know who he is. And um, so why is Dirk Steele so bad at spelling? I mean, it gives me some doubts that he actually managed to get through the recruiting process, if, if I was honest. Well, if you think about it, he's so busy training, you know, he doesn't have time for school. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's for the bootnecks. <laughs> um, no, he, uh, what, how Dirk came about was... Um, the Walter Mitty Hunters Club HQ page that most people are aware of. Um, if you look at all the waltz that they um, out, their spelling is always atrocious, you know. Their spelling is bad. And, you know, you'll see some of their um, photographs in their mum's back garden and stuff like that. So... Perfect. Uh, do, do you want to explain for our listeners what a, what a Walter Mitty is in, in terms of the military? Sure, uh, Walter Mitty is someone that is um, pretends that he was in that he served in the forces, and he'll he'll go on parades with um, medals he didn't earn that he bought off eBay, and you know basically bullshit people that he was uh, he actually served. So they always serve in either the SAS or the Paris for some reason, yeah, but yeah. very very rarely the Royal Marines. No, some Royal Marines. Um, yeah, that's it. That's that's where they uh, that's where they drive from. I mean, shit. It must be like the powers must be at least a million strong by now, I would think. But, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's but, army. Shit. <laughs> so, so you know, so the Walter Mitty Hunters Club that Russ mentioned, it's a group that sort of sprung up from from Facebook, I believe. Who who go after these guys? Um, with the intent on exposing them. Um, I, my only thoughts in, in there is I, I've seen guys that are just clearly mentally ill and it's just, yeah, they want to wear bloody military uniform. It, does that affect my life? No, not, not really. Does it affect the, does it dishonor the dead? Well, 
I don't think they're really going <laughs> to have a complaint. But for some, you know, some take it very seriously, Russ, don't they? They do. So with that in mind, I mean, if you're going to be a Walter Mitty, you might as well be a major Walter Mitty <laughs> and enter Dirk Steele, you know. He is the worst speller, you know. He lives with his mum. He's in the back gardens doing all his training. And um, I just, as a joke, I just came up with this character and started um, commenting on the page. Before you, <laughs> before you know it, um, the Walter Mitty Hunters Club put my profile up and said, okay, who's this? Very funny. And, you know, I just put all these crazy missions that, you know, you know, coming ashore in Afghanistan, you know, obviously it's landlocked. <laughs> Everything, I mean, it was so far-fetched. It was so, that it was obviously unbelievable. But a lot of people believed it, you know, thought I was a real Walter Mitty, which is kind of funny in itself, you know. I didn't expect that, but it was going to be just a, a couple of posts that I put up there, you know. But then I got hundreds upon hundreds of friend requests and it just took off. I'm like, all right, well, let's see where this goes. And here we are. Dirk's, Dirk's a legend in his own lunch, past his own lunchtime, whatever. And he's he's still up and going and um, going strong. And he's got tens of like, thousands of followers now. But, you know, if you can, you can laugh at yourself and then that's all it is. If I can make someone laugh and have a good laugh, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. Tongue-in-cheek humour. It's funny, though, Russ, because I've, I've, I've been on Dirk's page as a fan, a genuine fan, obviously, since quite near the beginning. I'm not even sure how I came across him. But anyway, I wasn't... A lot of people were taking it very seriously. <laughs> yeah. You were getting a, you know. I, oh, some of the messages I got. Oh. There's definitely a sort of, um, there's these kind of divides in life, aren't there? People that get the humour and people that don't. And it can be, for a lot of reasons, I think a lot of this sort of, can we say sort of the middle to upper class elderly can very often seem to take it well take it at face value take it at face value don't they and yeah. you know you're dishonoring the the regiment and it's like no he's not he's yeah. doing exactly what any of us you know who served yeah. in the military would 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 suggest and uh yeah yeah and, and i guess um i get it i did a one of my videos if people people want to look below is it's uh, I think it's like Royal Marine um, outs stolen valor right I said stolen valor because in in Britain we're not really civilians and the like aren't really that bothered about water mitties it's not like a thing here um, whereas in America it's a massive thing and it's and it's and it's in some states I believe it's illegal or I, I I think it's actually more illegal if you're using the uniform to break the law but it's always touted as it's illegal here so so I use the term stolen valor because the video was directed at the American audience 
I'm saying this because I've had to explain to people, no, I'm not trying to be American. I, I don't care. <laughs> you know, call me a water mitty, what, what, whatever. Um, so it all gets a bit funny. But, but the thing is, because it's a video pitched at the Americans and because we don't always share the same sense of humour, it's actually got a really, it's got a massive view count, but a very low rating. So, and that's because people go on it and they think it's serious. And rather than me outing the, the Walter Mitty, I go after the service person <laughs> and I'm going, well, this guy's a, a freaking bully. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I've got nothing better to do than, than attack this poor old man in the supermarket. <laughs> and, and, um, it, it, it's not my intention yeah. to, to take yeah. either side. I, I just thought it'd be funny to do one of these, you know, outing videos where the guy doesn't actually out anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Gosh. So where can people find that page, Russ? Um, I think if you just go on Facebook and, and type in Dirk Steele, Special Forces, um, you'll find him. And also another page is called Rob Smith. Don't ask me why. I'll <laughs> so my page has been taken down at least twice because people are pissed off and, you know, they think I'm a Walt, you know, still they don't get it. So I've had to change my name so that I can still keep the page running. So it used to be Dirk Steele, but then I just typed in Rob Smith, not realizing I couldn't change it back just to keep the page going. So I'm stuck with that name. So that's my other name. But you'll see, you'll see there's a community page which you can just click like, Dirk Steele Special Forces. It's exactly the same, except, um, you know, you friend request or just go to that page. I, I post the same things on both. But normally it's a, I try to do every Friday. I'll, I'll go through and I'll just find a bunch of special forces photographs, you know, on the, on the internet and I'll just save them. And the way I do it is I don't think about it. It's always, always off the cuff. So come Friday morning, I'll go, okay. What's Dirk going to do today? So I'll just look through and I'll just random, randomly pick a photograph and I'll just make a story about it on the spot. So that's the way I've always done it and it seems to work all right. But don't put too much thought into it. So, you know. For our friends, our friends at home, um, this is how Russ and I met. I got, I got yeah. a Facebook message one day from Dirk Steele. <laughs> and it's um this guy's such a legend that I didn't really expect to um be hearing from him. <laughs> and uh ever since Russ and I have been been friends and I just want to say thank you, Russ. You've supported not just my work as an author, which is it's it's so hard to get your name out there. So what you've done for me is um, I'm truly grateful for, and so is my family. Yeah, but also, right. you've been extremely generous. In fact, I think you've given more money to my charity um, events or the stunts I've done to raise awareness of veteran suicide um, and raise money for veterans' charities. You've been my number one donator. So, again, oh, thank you. No worries, mate. Thank you for that. 
and I hope to see you at one of our, uh, I don't want to give the details out, but one of our reunions over here at some point in the, um, yeah. in the future. Yeah, I'll try to get, I definitely want to make it, and we've got to meet up and uh, spin some more dates. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we'd, we'll get you on the podcast again, because um, yeah. as with any chat I have with a fellow Marine, it's not even skimming the surfaces. It's, right. it's um, just, it goes on and on. We're going <laughs> to bore people to death. <laughs> so, yeah. Russ, stay on the line. I'm just going to close this for for, for us, my subscribers. Um, okay. Russ, thank you ever so much for joining us. Yeah, no worries, mate. Pleasure. Sharing your Falkland story, which... Uh, it's just in, an invaluable part of history as far as I'm concerned. So thank you and let's see yeah. again soon. To our friends at home, much love to you all. Big respect. Thank you for watching the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. If you could like and subscribe, it just helps me to keep chatting to wonderful people like Russ. And the details for my £2 a month Patreon are in the links below. See you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.